I just want to say thank you for the well wishes, uh, some of the office treats and cards that we have received throughout the month. Uh, particularly, I'm thankful for the notes and letters that I've, we've gotten over the last month and um, just encouraged. I think of John when John says, nothing brings him greater joy than knowing that his people are walking in truth. I've gotten letters about how you're learning to hunger and thirst for God's righteousness more, about how you're really learning to hate your, the sin that's in your life, and how this body of believers, uh, whether you wanted them or not to make you more like Jesus, have been in your life helping you to become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I gotta tell you guys, now don't get me wrong, I'm gonna enjoy eating that double-double and uh, the, the Five Guys gift card I got. Uh, but as a pastor, hearing about how the Lord's working through his word, through his spirit, through his people has been really encouraging. So I want to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Same with Tim and Jesus and Jordan the rest of us. Just the joy of seeing God working in your guys' lives and hearing that written to us has been encouragement. So thank you very much. We feel deeply appreciative because you guys are submitting your lives to the gospel and it's being changed. So we're grateful for that. Uh, this morning, we're going to take a little bit of a break from our study of 2 Samuel. And we're jumping back into a series. Uh, it's probably the, the longest series I've ever preached. Not in terms of how many messages are in it. Because this one will only have maybe at the most 10. But in terms of how long it's going to take me to preach through it. Um, this is part 5 of a series entitled So Great a Salvation. Now I began this series 6 years ago in 2017, and that's because that was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so every last Sunday of the month of October, we celebrate Reformation Sunday because it was All Hallows' Eve um, uh, back in 1517 when Martin Luther went up to the castle door in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses to reform, the, at the time, the Catholic Church. And so every Reformation Sunday, I preach one more message in the series. And so at this rate, we'll probably be done by 2030 or something like that. So ho hopefully you'll be here for its entirety. Uh, if you want to hear the full sermon series, just go to our sermon website on, our, on the website. Just in the drop-down box, hit uh, So Great a Salvation. You'll find all the messages there. So this series, obviously it was inspired by Reformation Sunday, but it actually comes from the passage that Daniel read to us earlier, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And it's often been called the golden chain of redemption by theologians. In some ways, it's kind of like opening up the hood of a car and looking inside as to how does salvation work, right? When people ask, you know, if you're a Christian and you tell people, hey, I'm a Christian or I'm born again, if you're more from the, the 70s and 80s, you're born again or I'm saved, whatever it might be, you ever wonder what exactly do you mean by that phrase, right? What exactly do you mean when you say, I am a Christian? Well, according to Romans chapter 8, it means a couple things. And number one, it means you've been called by God, you've been chosen by God, you've been called out of darkness, you have been justified, and you've been glorified. And we see that in Romans 8. So we call it the golden chain of redemption. But as you, as you zoom back out on the whole of the Bible, going from Genesis to Revelation, and we see God's working with his people in this plan of salvation, there are about nine elements that go into this concept of salvation. So you see it on the screens behind me. Everything from election to calling to regeneration to conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. Now, those are the nine major headings, but notice I didn't even include in that things like repentance and faith, right? Union with Christ, uh, baptism or filling with the Holy Spirit. Those are kind of subheadings in these larger headings here. The point is this. If you are a Christian, 
Someone who has, you know, just realized what you are and abandoned all hope of saving yourself and thrown yourself on the mercy of God, turning from your sin in repentance and turning towards Christ in faith, there is a whole lot more going on to this experience of being saved, being a Christian, being born again, whatever term you want to use, than maybe you've realized. Now, in this series, so going back to 2017, so that first a year, I talked about the Reformation because the, the reality is, as Christians today, we're so, uh, I know I'm going to offend you guys. No, I'm not. You guys, you guys can I say all kinds of stuff. You don't get offended. Um, we're, we're really, by and large, as a church, we're often ignorant, not just our church, but the church of our history. And the, people don't realize that the Protestant Reformation that took place in 17, or 1570 that began then, I mean, not only did it turn Europe upside down, it has impacted Western civilization and to this day has implications for our global uh, reality. I mean, there's a reason. Oh, here, I feel like I'm going on a rabbit trail. There's a reason political leaders meet in Geneva of all places because that was the hub of where the Reformation's kind of plan for governance and this new kind of Christian world would begin. And it started in Geneva with John Calvin. So that was 2017. Just kind of saying, what is the Reformation? Why is it important? This recovery of the gospel, the recovery of scripture, right? In 2018, we we took a step back and looked at a 10,000-foot view of the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8, 28 to 30. Then we took a break in 2019, but then in 2020, we, we had uh, approached the first doctrines, doctrines of election and calling, and then 2021, the doctrines of regeneration and conversion. And so today, part five, is the doctrine, the theological doctrine of justification. And so the way I want to move forward um, is basically by asking and answering three questions. Number one, why is, uh, what is the doctrine of justification? Number two, why is the doctrine of justification important? And then number three, how should the doctrine of justification change my life? So in some sense, you can look at it this way. And I'm sorry, I know I have a frog in my voice. It's just it's one of those things. Um, we're going to look at this topic theologically. We're going to look at this topic psychologically. And then we're going to look at this topic practically. That's how we're going to look at it this morning. Each of those questions are, are hinting at one of those things. Let's take a first, look at the first one. What is the doctrine of justification? Here's the definition. An instantaneous legal act of God in which he does two things. Number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And number two, he declares us to be righteous in his sight. So there's a couple parts to this definition. First one, it says it's a legal act. People tend not to think of God in terms of legal terms, so let's unpack that. A legal act implies there's a legal system, a courtroom, a judge, all those things that go with it. And when you think about it, this ought to make sense. Because we live in a world that's constrained by laws. And I don't, I don't mean like traffic laws and that kind of thing. I mean like fundamental laws that order reality. We live in a world of physical laws, physics, the law of inertia, the law of action and reaction. We live in a world of rational laws, the laws of logic, by which we can't even communicate with each other with, and, and, and make sense. So you got the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle. So we have physical laws, we have rational laws, and we have moral laws, the Ten Commandments being a best example of that. Now, if you're having conversations with your friends, you know, outside of the church setting, or they, they may kind of go, stop right here, wait a minute. I get it. Yeah, physical laws, we, get, we can't deny physics, right? Rational laws, yeah, I get that. We got rational laws, but we don't have moral laws. Moral, morality is subjective. There's no such thing as moral laws. They would say that until you take your iPhone and break it in two, right? Or you get your key and key your name on the hood of their Tesla. What are they going to say? Hey, stop that. That's what? Wrong. 
They will not ever say, hey, I really don't appreciate the way you're expressing your autonomy. But since there are no laws that govern our behavior, I realize in principle I can't disagree other than say this is not what I prefer. No, they know that there has been a wrong committed and it's wrong. It's a moral law. Now, behind every law is a lawgiver, a judge. A judge that determines how we stack up towards the law. And as a Christian, we recognize that God is this ultimate judge and he has found us guilty of violating his laws. Yeah, you can think about the Ten Commandments, but there's so much more besides that. Which is why, by the way, we feel guilty. We feel guilty, these experiences of feeling guilt, because we have broken those laws and that subjective feeling of being guilty is just confirming the objective reality that we've transgressed some kind of moral command. Now, at this point, if you're ever talking to your friends, they, they may have a problem with this, and they may have a problem with an ultimate judge. And I typically tell my, my non-Christian friends, look, if you, if you have a problem with an ultimate judge of the universe, you've got a bigger problem than you realize. And they say, what are you talking about? Well, because if there is no ultimate judge of this world, then what, are we gonna, what do we say to all the injustice and tyranny around us? Does that just get, get they just get a pass? If there's no ultimate judge to hold that accountable, what will we say? However, if there is an ultimate judge, well, what hope is there for you who've done so much wrong? What hope is there for me who've done so much wrong? So either way we look at it, if there's no judge, what hope is there for the world when there's so much wrong in the world? But there, if there is a judge, what hope is there for you and I who've done so much wrong? But see, friends, this is exactly why the biblical doctrine of justification by faith is so good. Because it answers this exact dilemma. God, the ultimate judge, will have justice, and yet he can still exercise mercy for those who ask for that mercy, even though we've broken the law. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 3, verse 26. So that he, God, might be just and the justifier, making someone right, of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the question. How does that then happen? Well, we look at our definition. He thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. So here's how this plays out. The theological doctrine of justification says Christ lived the perfect life. He kept the law, the whole law, the entire law, his entire life on behalf of you and I, law breakers. And he did what the law demanded all his life and then voluntarily died as the law required for those who break the law. Which is exactly why the last thing Jesus says on the cross, according to John 19.30, he yells out, Tetelestai, which is Greek for, it is finished. Well, when he's dying, when he's about to give up his spirit and he cries out, it is finished, what is he referring to? What is this thing that got finished? The ultimate sacrifice. God's ultimate sacrifice for our sins. This is what John the Baptist says early on in the Gospel of John. He sees Jesus and John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when we're willing they say, look, I am a lawbreaker. Jesus is the only law keeper. 
and he voluntarily took my place. The ultimate judge took my judgment. He thinks of your sins as forgiven because you realize the high price your law-breaking cost. He thinks of your sins as forgiven because you esteem the value of what Christ has done. He thinks of your sins as forgiven because you see the worth of his life being given for your own. Now, why do I keep saying he thinks? That doesn't diminish God's forgiveness. It's simply because, guys, God's omniscient. It's not like he can forget our sin, right? It's not like all of a sudden you have faith in Christ. It's like, oh, you sinned? I had no idea. That's not how that works when you're omniscient. He always knows. He thinks, and what that means is, he chooses never to hold those sins against us. This is what Psalm 103, verse 12 says. As far as is the east from the west, how far is that? They never meet, right? So far does he remove our transgressions from us. So he thinks of our sins as forgiven. He will never think of them ever again. He will not, he will, his intentionality is to never think of those things again. But it's not, there's more. It's not just that he thinks of our sins as forgiven. That's just half of it. And that, that's not bad. But then we would just be morally neutral before a holy God. We would be in the place that Adam and Eve were before sin. Justification teaches so much more. Look at the definition. Oops, do I have it on the screen? Oh, sorry about that. It's not just that our sins are forgiven but you also have the righteousness of Christ belonging to you. That was part of that definition. See, this is what theologians call the great exchange where Christ takes upon himself the nakedness of our sin and we get clothed with the robes of his righteousness. So this is what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is called the great exchange. We get Christ's righteousness. He takes upon our sin. No exchange could be greater than that. And the result of that exchange is that God in his cosmic courtroom declares you not just innocent, but he declares you righteous. Not just arbitrarily righteous, but the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ, because it was an exchange. Now, like I said briefly, that's the theological definition of justification. In the final kind of cosmic court of arbitration, God declares that we are not only not guilty of sin, but we have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Now, why is that important? Why is that theological doctrine important to us? That's our second question. So here's the answer in one sentence that I'll spend the next few moments unpacking. Here we go. Justification is important because everyone in this room, right, man, woman, young, old, religious, irreligious, Christian, not Christian, everyone in this room is looking for their righteousness. Now, I'm going to unpack what I mean by that, but that's a definite statement. This doctrine is really important because everyone in this room, it doesn't matter whether you consider yourself a Christian or not a Christian, religious or irreligious, everyone's looking for their righteousness. Let me explain. In Genesis chapter one, the Bible says humanity was made in the image of God. That is to say we were created for righteousness. Every one of us were created to reflect the most righteous, holy being that there was. But sin brought a huge disruption to that. 
But yet, we all still yearn for this righteousness. Now, what do I mean by righteousness is this? It, it's, it's literally in the word, rightness. Now, rightness, I don't mean like right as in you're right in a rational argument, but right in the terms of your very essence. You ever had anyone ask you, what's wrong with you? Right, okay. They're, they're basically asking, what is broken inside of you that you're such a, a, a slob or whatever? In the same way, we're thinking of rightness the same way. You're right. You're put together. You're valuable. You're significant. Righteousness speaks to our value, our worth, our sense of significance and identity, our acceptability, our dignity. That's what I mean by every one of us is searching for that. And it's everywhere you look. Every human being longs for this. But now in a post-Genesis 3 world, we look for it in very sinful ways. Instead of getting our value, our worth, our significance from God, we pursue our self, a self-rightness, a self-righteousness. And by the way, this can take all kinds of forms. You don't have to be religious to be self-righteous. The irreligious, they're seeking to justify their dignity through self-righteous acts like standing up for the right social justice causes, political involvement, or being a good steward of the planet. Uh, Self-righteousness amongst the religious can be just people who are trying to live up to God's laws and their own rules. Our righteousness is basically a a culmination of our achievements and our accomplishments, and that's how we determine I have value. Righteousness is your way of saying you're not a nobody. That's what righteousness, practically speaking, the biblical concept, that's what that notion's about. You're not a nobody. No, I know that's, that can be somewhat still cerebral, so let me give you an illustration that's more relatable. Um, what, do, what does a job interview, a first date, and college application have in common? Okay, that, that covers a big bunch of you here. A job interview, first date, and a job application, or college application. They have in common that you are hoping that somebody finds you acceptable. That the other person on the other side of that table says, you're, you're qualified enough, you're good enough for this position. That the person on the other side of that table says, you're charming enough, you're beautiful enough for a second date. That the person on the other side of that table says, you're smart enough, you're special enough to be our student in our elite school. Friends, every one of those is a verdict on your sense of worth, on your sense of value, on your sense of acceptability. Every one of those, you sit there waiting, will they find me acceptable? Will I be right for them? Will I have, and that's what righteousness is. When you have it, you feel great. And when you don't, you're down in the dumps. And so psychology, that's what they've been saying for the last couple of decades, right? That they're saying this this sense of our value, our worth, our significance, without this, we struggle, we limp along, and we're less than what we could be. And so we go through life, every one of us, seeking our righteousness. So this is what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about righteousness. Our feeling of, I am not a nobody, I have value, I have significance, I'm acceptable. And so for most people, Christian or not, you kind of go through life trying to find your righteousness here, trying to find your righteousness there. But the problem is all the righteousness from this world is fickle. Because when you think about it, if that's your righteousness, if I'm good enough, that means there's probably somebody who's going to be better. There's going to be somebody more competent than you. There'll be somebody more charming than you. There'll be somebody smarter than you. 
And so your sense of being enough is an ever-receding horizon. Let's take a look at uh, something one of the, the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, said. Brilliant. He's capturing this idea. So Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. The numbers are not in the original text. I just put them there so it's easy to follow his argument. The Lord says this. For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, this metaphor should make sense because Jesus talked about being the living waters, right? What's the, what's the metaphor here? The Lord's saying, I'm this fount of living water. I quench the thirst. I bring refreshment. I bring life. And yet they've abandoned me and now they're looking for that same thing and they're just breaking, they're making these broken cisterns and they hold no water. And that's where they're trying to get life. They're trying to get their righteousness from that. And so we were made for righteousness, but because we are sinners, we seek that righteousness sinfully. What makes Christianity kind of hard for people to wrap their minds around is because one of the core messages of Christianity is that we have to admit that I don't have any righteousness of my own. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not competent enough. I'm not qualified enough. I'm not char- I'm just not enough. And to admit that, man, that jacks with your very core. Because we were made to have righteousness, but because of our rebellion against God, we no longer get our righteousness there. We're still going to seek for that righteousness no matter where, from anything, even from cisterns that hold no water. But that's what we're going to do. So the first problem of self-rightness is that it's this ever-receding horizon, right? The second one is that it's actually built on deception. What do I mean by that? Okay, so let's say you get the date. Hey, you feel good about yourself. At least one person in the world thinks you're worth spending time with, right? Good. You get the job. Oh, man, you're validated. You're smart enough. You're competent. You have worth. You get into that elite college. Yes, you are smart enough. You can walk tall. But soon enough, and you guys all know this, the, the, the feeling of I matter from that wears off because Nothing of this world is thick enough, is substance enough to meet your deepest need to be accepted, to be known and brought in. So those colleges, even the date or the job, man, that might make you feel good for a little while, but they're a broken sister and they don't hold water, and then you need something else, and then you need something else, and then you need something else. But more importantly, here's the problem. Because you know... The job interviewer, the date, or that college admissions board, they only saw a part of you. They saw the part you wanted them to see. If they actually saw you, everything about you, you know they wouldn't accept you. You know they would say, no, 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 you are not the kind of person we want working here you know she or he would say, I don't want to spend time with somebody like that. The college would be like, no, that'll ruin our reputation. And so here's the dilemma, friends. The very righteousness we need to feel worthy is a righteousness that we're building on deception. If the world really knew you for who you were, 
they wouldn't accept you. And so I've said it before, right? Like, if you really knew me for who I was, you wouldn't bother listening to me preach, right? But before you get all upset, if I knew you like, I really, like you really are, I wouldn't bother preaching to you, right? So, so it works out. <laughs> My point simply is, we're always keeping just the, our, our arm's length away from who we really are because if people really know who we are, we know they would not accept us. And so even the value and the worth and the acceptance of this world is superficial for that reason, and we know it. And so we're always seeking for more righteousness because it keeps running out. It's like Jeremiah said, they just don't hold water. But friends, this is where the biblical teaching of justification by faith alone is so radically different. Because it is not based on your performance It is not based on you or your performance. It's entirely based upon Jesus Christ and his performance. And if you really understand it, it's not even about God accepting you, God valuing you, God esteeming you. As much as it is, it is God accepting, valuing, and esteeming Christ. And if you are in him, that flows to you as well. It has really, in some sense, nothing to do with you and everything to do with Christ. And man, the, the, the Bible's teaching on justification, as I said, it's hard to accept because we have to admit the very thing we seek, we cannot ever achieve, not in ourselves. In all our attempts to do so, it only makes matters worse. We can never relate to God based on our self-rightness. Because of my sin, because of your sin, I cannot go to that final courtroom and argue my case based on my merits, based on the things I've done. I have none, and neither do you. We are all in desperate need. But that's why justification is so important. It's not about you and I. It is about what Jesus has done. It's not about what you did, what you're doing, or what you will do. And if you are willing to admit I have no righteousness to bring. I've got nothing. I have absolutely nothing to contribute except more calamity of my own making. And that's exactly why I'm coming to Christ because I got none of it and I need it from him. And when you get that and he says, that's it. I want to give you my righteousness. It'll change the way you live. Now you may say, how does it change the way you live? That's our last question here. Now, To answer this, let me set this up with a little bit of history here because we are talking about this is kind of coming from the Reformation. When the Protestant reformers, thanks to Martin Luther studying through the the, um, book of Romans, came to the rediscovery of this gospel that, you know, had always been part of the church, Augustine, always been part of the church, but it got layered over with religiosity when the reformers realized that this doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ and that Christ's sacrifice before God was totally and completely satisfactory to him. And there's nothing we could do, nothing we could ever do that would change God's verdict of righteous toward us. The the, the Roman Catholic Church kind of freaked out. They said, wait, let's get this straight, reformers. Are you actually saying that by nothing but admitting our absolute need for righteousness and saying that it's found in Jesus Christ alone, that God's verdict upon you is completely, absolutely, eternally right. And the reformer said, yeah, you're, you're getting what we're talking about. That it's all about Christ and not about us. Now, you can understand why the Roman church freaked out. 
Because their argument was, if justification meant that it was all about the work of Christ and not our moral behavior, not our performance, not even our effort, then you have removed every incentive for practical, righteous living. People will live however they want. Now, you can understand that line of thinking, can't you? Especially if you read the book of Romans, that was the same argument that the Judaizers were making against Paul in his argument for the gospel. Now, let me read to you, I think probably one of the, the most profound things on justification. It was written in the 16th century. This is from the Belgic Confession, 1561. Let me read it, then explain what they're saying, because I think these, these people were brilliant. This is what it says. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life, that on the contrary, without it, they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Okay, what is he saying here? The first sentence is saying, guys, it, guys Roman, the, in response to the Roman church, it is so far from being true that when people understand the gospel, they're not going to want to live a holy and righteous life. The, the word pious. We, 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 we kind of have negative overtones for pious because it's saying, I'm so, I'm so pious. But, but pious is a good thing, right? They're saying it is so far from the truth that when people understand the gospel that they're not going to live this kind of life. In fact, until they understand that the gospel is one of grace, justification by faith alone. Until they get that, that it's totally the work of Christ and absolutely not dependent upon us, until that's like permeating in them, that the only response, the only motivation they will have in obedience will either be out of pride or it will be out of fear. They're saying, you might be obeying God, but if your motivation is anything other than just the grateful response of the gospel, you're doing it either to build up your treasure chest of self-righteousness so you can say, look how good I am, or you're doing it because you don't want to receive his punishment and you fear his wrath, and that's fear. Like, let, let's take some illustrations. Like, so being honest, right? How many of your parents try and teach your kids? Well, we have to be honest. Why? Because that's what good people do. Uh, implication, and we're not bad people. We're good people. What is that feeling? Kind of pride, right? Or we have to be honest because what if we get caught? Fear, right? So either pride or fear. Or uh, let's talk about giving. Well, I give because I'm a good Christian, and that's what good Christians do. I don't just give 10%. I give 12% because I'm pretty awesome. Pride, Right? Or, oh man, I better give because if I don't give to God, maybe he's going to punish me or he's not going to love me as much. Fear. Do you see how what they're saying, unless you understand the gospel is surely an act of absolute ridiculous grace that you could never pay back, you will always be motivated out of one of those two trajectories. When you get, friends, your righteousness is in Christ. That you are totally accepted. You are totally valued. You are esteemed by God because you are in Christ. It radically changes you. Totally changes you. So you get the job. You got the job. But you don't get all puffed up because you know you have no righteousness of your own. But even if you don't get it, it won't destroy you because your identity is not bound up in your vocation. Your identity is firmly rooted in Christ. So you don't get the second date. 
You're not destroyed because no one person can determine your value. God did that in Christ. He's given you value. Or you do get the date. Well, you're totally excited. But now you're excited for the right reasons because you can receive this as God's good gift to you, not as someone approving your sense of value and worth. See how how, how in 10,000 ways this understanding of the gospel can transform your life. It destroys any sense of pride and it gets rid of any fear. Let me conclude with this last, it's a little bit of a lengthy illustration, but I think it's powerful. I got it from uh, Becky Pepperton. She was a, a Christian writer from a number of years ago. And she star- shared a story about a young woman. She went to a conservative evangelical church, godly young woman, and she was going to get married to a young man in that same church. And they were like paragons of virtue. They're like shining lights of, of a young Christian couple. Six months before their marriage, they realized she was pregnant. And at that moment, it occurred, it, it, they, the, the horrifying realization is they felt like, oh, everything that, we, that everyone thinks we are is going to be exposed. Our hypocrisy is going to be exposed. People are going to find out what we've, been, what we've been preaching is not what we've been practicing. And so what the, the young couple decided to do was to abort the child. After listening to Becky Pepperton speak, she, she went to talk to her after, and she says, she wants to share her story. She says, you know, Becky, when I was walking down that aisle in front of all my family and friends, I couldn't get that voice out of my head. You were so worried about being exposed. You killed your baby just so you wouldn't look bad in front of all these people. I know what you are. God knows what you are. You were more concerned about what all these people would think than the life of your child. You're a murderer. That's so why she says to Becky, I've, I've confessed this a thousand times, and I just can't get it out of my head. How could God possibly forgive me? And obviously she was obsessing over it. It was just driving her to despair. It was destroying her. So Becky says she kind of did one of those prayers, Lord, help, and breathe, and, and started talking to her. Oh, sweetie. She said, Jesus Christ had to die for all our sins, the sins of the religious and irreligious, the sins of the Nazis and the sins of their victims, the sins of the moral types and the sins of the immoral types. We're all responsible for the death of Jesus, the only innocent man who ever lived. The sin that caused you to destroy this life was pride, and it was pride that destroyed Jesus Christ's life 2,000 years ago. As Martin Luther said, We all carry around his very nails in our pockets. And then she said this. You were already a murderer before this happened. And it was all totally paid for long ago. You had already taken an innocent life before this happened. And it was all paid for long ago. What do you think happened to that young lady? Did she get mad? Did she say, you're making me feel worse? No. She didn't. Because in that moment, she got the point. She got the point. She turned to Becky and she said, all right, hold on a minute. Hold up. You're right. I've always believed in my head that I was a sinner and that my sins were responsible for the death of Christ, and now I see it. I came here to tell tell you the worst thing imaginable that I've done, and you just got through telling me I've done something far worse than that. But if I am worse than I'd imagined... And I killed God's son, and that can be forgiven, then anything else can. 
Friends, what justification by faith is saying is if God has seen you at your worst, then he has. If God has seen you for what you really are, and he does. If God has seen you at the worst despicable aspect of who you are, and it's the cross, I've always said, until you see the cross as something done by you, you can never appreciate it as something done for you. If God has seen you at your worst, and he still accepts you, and loves you, and cherishes you, and brings you in because of Christ, friends, that will change your life. When you get that realization that he will, that, that, that's so true, it changes the way you move the world, friends. It destroys your pride. It gets rid of your vanity, any sense of self. You will be the kind of person that you'll never be defensive again. You won't be petty. You cannot be insulted. You will never be offended because when you know in your bones you have zero righteousness of your own, but you've got something so much better the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That'll change you, man. And because it's not dependent upon you, it's all dependent upon him. So I just gotta ask, friends, are you still trying to find your righteousness out of these broken cisterns of life that you think that it's gonna be like the fountain of living water and you're running to and fro trying to find your righteousness when the Lord says, this is right there. It's in him. It's in Jesus Christ. That's what justification means. That we are loved and valued and esteemed because of the work of Christ. We often like to say salvation's not by works. You know what? That's wrong. <laughs> Salvation is by works. It's just not your works, but the work of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for <laughs> the gospel. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to be good enough, acceptable enough, beautiful enough, charming enough, put together enough. In fact, we cannot. In fact, to try is to spit in your face for the very purpose that you sent your son to do what we could never do. Lord, give us the grace to admit we are really that bad off that it has to be your charity. But to recognize you joyfully, abundantly want to give that charity. Help us to have that truth permeate our lives. That is all by grace. And Father, we don't have to define ourselves by our actions and our achievements. We can rest that we don't have our righteousness. We have something better. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so Father, we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that you give that gift of faith to anyone in this room today. That they would know what it's like to be esteemed, valued, and accepted. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.